Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. What's going on, movie fans? Today we have a special guest with us to talk about our November film. Today we have Kyle Snar. Kyle's a gear guy, auto enthusiast, and film buff. He's head of partnerships at Warren and Wound and the co-founder of Cantonment, a TGN favorite, and a big fan of Single Serving Cinema Podcast. Welcome aboard, Kyle. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, welcome, Kyle. Hey, I'm super excited to be here, and I love the movie that we're about to talk about. And yeah, like you said, I'm a big fan, and you know, a movie buff for a long time, as, as long back as I can remember, and uh, mm-hmm. very, very excited to um, talk shop and dig into this film. Right Absolutely. So you're you you know self-described film buff. Uh, what's sort of your background with movies? Like what what do you what do you how do you approach them? Yeah. So um, you know, like I said, I, I've I've been a big time movie consumer since literally as long as I can remember, um, and that led me to you know go, growing up thinking that that's what I wanted to do as a living. I wanted to make movies, and getting uh, very very fortunately, I was able to take a film as my, my, my major in, in college. And uh, so as a film major and a screenwriting em- with a screenwriting emphasis, I spent um, the first half of my, my college years really thinking that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a screenwriter and, and write full-length feature films. And about halfway through film school, I kind of realized that I was much more interested in telling shorter stories than maybe feature-length ones. Mm-hmm. And that led me to really kind of conning my way into as many advertising classes as I could and uh, kind of ended up minoring in advertising and have spent my career telling stories in the advertising medium. Um, but right after school, I also was very, very excited to get called back to my alma mater to, to teach introduction to film to freshmen for a few years there. So mm-hmm. that's another part of my my little film history there is just being able to teach kind of analytical thinking for these freshmen who are trying to figure out how to think like a college kid. Um, and Mm -hmm. yeah, but, but been a big movie buff ever since and love the chance to talk movies with any, anyone, anytime. Well, we're excited to have you here. Uh, and it's great that you got those bona fides. You and Tay both sort of come from the, an academic side. Uh, and Tay obviously with some, some boots on the ground experience as well. I think like maybe, maybe one of the ways to dive in here, we're talking today about Dunkirk, uh, Christopher Nolan's 2017 war movie. Um, one movie ago for him, uh, in between here and there was Tenet. That's weird to think um, about, eh? Right. Just one yeah, movie removed an... from Dunkirk. Yeah. And Dunkirk was 2017. And here we are in 2022. We got another one coming next year. Which is very exciting, um, but uh, maybe before we even get into our our synopsis, Kyle, uh, you you mentioned how film uh, movie making and uh, and advertising is about telling stories. Um, it, would you consider Christopher Nolan to be an advertiser? And if so, what, what's he mm-hmm. what's he trying to sell? <laughs> that's that's really interesting. Well, you know, I, I at the time um, right after school, I was living in Salt Lake City, and my wife and I we would go to Sundance Film Festival religiously every single year while we lived there. And we were, we were, we were at the festival when Memento hit. And, you know, I didn't see Memento while at the festival, but I was first in line to see it when it came out in theaters because mm-hmm. of the, the vibe that it had really um, created, the buzz that it had created there. And, and everyone was just kind of like 
really hip to this kind of new way of storytelling that he had he'd really kind of fostered there, which was obviously nonlinear, but also nonlinear and backwards and, and all these kind of fun things that he mm-hmm. w- was doing with the medium. And so, you know, he quickly built himself a brand, right? He built himself a way of kind of looking at the world, a way of looking at what's important in a movie. Um, mm-hmm. Style is extremely important to him. Time obviously is a theme that he continues to go back to and, and, and then also just the, his his approach to um, really recreating how or reimagining how a movie trailer should kind of hit and inventing mm. sound effects that have gotten reused numerous times in movie trailers ever since and and just kind of the bringing the the cinematic scope back to movie dim which which we I think we had lost and so I'm grateful for a director like him for helping kind of making that mainstream again which yeah. you know I don't necessarily I'm not a fanboy for every single one of his movies. I, I, I look at them with, I try and look at them still with a critical eye, mm-hmm. but I, I do appreciate everything he's done to bring, to bringing back that cinematic scope of movies to the forefront again. Yeah. Cinematic with that capital C, right? He's yeah. really one of the only people who's making movies of this scale and magnitude. It's, it's very cool hearing kind of from your personal perspective, like the phenomena of, a an indie darling film like memento and then what's that what that has now become uh the career of probably one of the most noteworthy directors of our time and it's very i don't know that's just cool perspective i guess absolutely like it must have been so big like such a buzz around there when it was when it was coming out absolutely and he and you can see that he brands his his movies like the way that he even displays the the uh, title of his movies on the screen is 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 very much on brand every single mm-hmm. time he cares about these kind of details and he's crafting what his version of the cinematic experience should look and feel like and act like and you mentioned even from the advertising perspective he i have a friend who's also a huge nolan fan who kind of i don't know i'll, st- I'll steal their claim that Nolan has revitalized what it means to make a trailer every like five to 10 years. He's kind of changed the whole formula and then everybody just spends the next five to 10 years following what Nolan did in his most recent trailer. Uh, He's kind of re like, I don't know, even with his most recent Oppenheimer trailer, I think we're about to see an entirely revolutionized way of advertising movies again. Mm hmm. Yeah, I you know, and I think this plays into the movie of choice today. You know, I think I don't know about you guys, but for for a lot of folks, myself included, I think there was a little bit of like head scratching going on after Interstellar. It felt like he had maybe taken a few too many liberties of and and mm-hmm. maybe cashed in a few too many, you know, permission slips. Um, yeah. And so, not that I was like hesitant, but but it really was the trailer for Dunkirk that was like a selling was a selling factor. It's just like okay, there's something going on here that is like very 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 powerful. Like the trailer mm-hmm. itself communicated that power, and and I was very pumped to go see that on opening on opening night. Um, yeah the 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 ending of the trailer I remember where it's just that that shot of the mole and it's all the helmets mm-hmm. and then you hear the the Stukas. And they're, I'll talk about it later, the, the Jericho trumpets as they're coming down. And then it's just one face after another sort of looks up past the camera. And it's it's a wonderfully effective uh, a way to close that trailer and bring them in. Because I, I, I would agree that, yeah, like Interstellar, 
is kind of it feels like Christopher Nolan jumping his own shark just a little bit like it's it's well it's hard with Tenet in mind to say (laughs) like it's the most like Nolan just doing exactly what he wants for better and worse like maybe sort of some of his weaknesses in terms of dialogue and creating human characters right but but while also couching it all in like a an exploration of time and what it means and and what it means to be stuck in it and what happens when you can get out of it um but uh uh dunkirk is definitely it feels because what, what i would have said was i think if anything nolan is selling cinema that like this is not something that can live just on a tv the future of this is not smaller and smaller and more on demand it is there is a potential future for cinema where it is still event-based viewing it is people have to leave one environment and enter another one and it has to be held to a standard and there has to be a form of perfection in terms of how it's presented so i do think generally his movies are all a case for movies can be this big and movies can do something that no other art form can do but dunkirk i think is a little irregular for nolan because well, as we'll talk about, it has all these Nolan ideas in it and obviously has the Nolan structure in uh, in temporalities or time strata. There's some pl- some way he put it that was really uh, fun to read. Um, he's also like he's doing a war movie um, and he's talking about a real event, things that like just don't... I, I, I wouldn't have ever guessed it for Nolan. It's also largely patriotic. I think he... He can often come across as not a particularly British filmmaker, at least in terms of what he's putting on screen. Obviously, there's all the things about him on set. He wears a suit and, and you know, he treat, he's, he's a real professional. He's very Hitchcock about it, whoever, whoever you want to call out for that. But I think so many of his movies before this, Inception and Interstellar and things like that, the big ones that he's known for, feel like these kind of movies without a, without a nation to call home to. And then he comes out with Dunkirk and you're like, it's a real event. It, there's not a lot of star power in it. Um, it. It's it's big. It has his scale, but it also doesn't feel like it has the set pieces that his other movies had to have. Where like, you know, Interstellar, he had scientists do new research on black holes to figure out how to represent a star collapsing into one. And then and then you're like, oh, okay, he's telling a real story, and uh, and he's not. He doesn't need need too much star power. Things like that. I find it be an irregular move for Nolan. I think blockbusters typically, though, are inherently either American or international, right? They are rarely anything uh, mm. particularly or distinctly from another country other than, I would say, American, at least across most of the examples I can think of. When it comes to war mm. films, though, that might change a little bit. I'm thinking mainly of, like, Braveheart or maybe... Yeah, I guess. Yeah. But there's not that many that stray away, so... For Nolan to kind of be this very Hollywood blockbuster filmmaker, I think turning his attention to something much more close to home for him was what makes this movie what it is in many ways because of the yeah the uh, it's very intimate and he's clearly very passionate about telling this exact story, a story that I don't think many people know about, right? Uh, as far as even like historians and war war historians go, mm-hmm. I I never heard this story and I'm not super well researched on world war ii stuff but i don't think yeah i don't think like west of britain it's as important a part of the curriculum yeah exactly yeah. right because it is pre-american yeah. involvement in the war and even even from the canadian perspective 
it's just not something that a lot of people think about. So I I think, I mean, I was listening to, just before this, I'll link it in the show notes, but this was one of Tarantino's favorite movies of the 2010s and on the big, not big picture, uh, the Rewatchables podcast. He did a whole episode with those guys. Was it not his favorite? I think it might have been number one or number two. I yeah, can't remember. it was his favorite. I thought it was It his was his favorite? favorite? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, but he was talking about it, and he was saying how the second or third time he saw it, he was in Piccadilly Circus, and he was looking for something to do, and he, he went into a movie theater there, and every single person he talked to, obviously because lots of people were recognizing him, and they wanted to know what movie he was seeing, every British person he talked to was just like, oh, you're going to love it. It's fantastic. And he, he very quickly became aware of the pride that this movie instilled. Yeah, if we're talking um, that type of, of love for that movie, I, you know, it, it, first of all, we're pronouncing it wrong because the Brits don't say it's, Dunkirk. Yeah. They put the uh, <laughs> they put the emphasis on the other syllable. Yeah, they, Dunkirk. They, they say Dunkirk. <laughs> correct. And um, it's it, it is a it is a big deal to them. It is their 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 one of their epic stories of their his of their nation's history. And it, and it what kind of the darkest hour speech came straight out of mm-hmm. which is something we are kind of probably more familiar with this was like right. yeah. what what kind of was the forcing factor to make that thing happen so yeah it, it is it, i i did i was not familiar with the story either and and so you know when it when when those previews did come out and i was excited to see it you know we, i'm very fortunate in my little town we have a, a really great little art house cinema and um, in, in it, it's a single screen cinema and and in it, there's a stage in front of the screen. So I can actually go up and literally sit in the front row and have, be, get, get far right enough, in the cockpit. Yeah, be far enough yeah. away from the screen to not have it not be unenjoyable, but really mm-hmm. have it be a completely immersive experience. And when you talk about Nolan and his like quest to like keep movies in cinema, in theaters and mm-hmm. try and like keep that scale at what it was. I was like really kind of immersed as as immersed as you could get between the sound and the the proximity of the screen and the way that this movie is shot. So I did not see it on IMAX. I have never seen it on IMAX, but like mm-hmm. you, I just having that kind of proximity to the screen and and it was it wasn't a packed theater by any stretch. So I felt very much immersed in it. And you know, for me, I, when I when I really am like affected by a movie i oftentimes if i'm if i have the dvd or the the blu-ray at home like i'll watch it a second time immediately thereafter mm. so i watched this in the theater and i was just kind of just blown away by it you know there's just a couple of scenes in particular that brought me to the brink and and you know it was the last showing of the day and the, the next day i was still just buzzing about it and dying mm. to see it and we had a kind of a neighborhood barbecue the next day and a new family had just moved in around the block and kind of meeting people and I'm talking to this 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 dad and and I find out that he is a film a filmmaker and an and a editor and animator and mm. and we start talking about the movies we love and I'm literally just like what are what what are you doing after this barbecue yeah, <laughs> like yeah. we need to go see this right now so like I saw it the next night at the same theater in the same seat because I was mm. so like I need to soak this in one more time yeah. and understand because I'll be honest, like um, if we're talking about those those temporal shifts that he does, mm-hmm. like that first about it took me by about halfway through the first viewing to realize, OK, these are three different not just moments that are happening in this movie, but there are three different time rates that yeah. are happening in this movie. Yeah. And I didn't realize that to about halfway through my first viewing. But I really wanted to get that second viewing in quickly to kind of analyze it from the get-go of like, how is he doing this and what's he playing with? And you said in something else that was really interesting about this movie, you said, 
you know, we've been talking about its scale, its scope, its grandeur, but we also use the word intimate, which is mm-hmm. really interesting. There's a really bizarre dichotomy going here yeah. On, yeah. on in this movie of just like the sheer scale and like vistas and amount mm-hmm. of people in a shot and all of these things that are just seem massive, these ginormous warships and, and everything that's going on while all of the stories are like teeny tiny. That are like yeah. these little teeny tiny stories where we're just getting these little character arcs that are feel like really nuanced and personal and and really emotional. So it's a I, I love that 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 bigness and that littleness happening all yeah. at once. It's really interesting, and I think that takes a master's hand to really pull it off. And for me, this is his best film, like almost by like a long shot. Like 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 for me, it just seems like leaps and bounds better than the rest. Mm-hmm. And it feel I, I remember feeling very distinctly like this is like this feels like a student film. This feels like an indie film, but with like a massive production budget. But it's like I yeah. have an idea for a little tricky movie that I want to make about different lengths of time and how they mm-hmm. can coincide at some point in the film. It seems like a very kind of like film studenty concept. But then with like obviously the means of a massive, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Hollywood studio budget and and obviously the, the the backing of the french air force or excuse me the the, yeah, yeah. the, the, uh, the english navy and, and air force you know so yeah no i think i think uh i re- i do want to dig into that because whether or not this is his best movie is i think a, a, a pertinent question and the type of question we try to avoid on ssc but i like <laughs> asking tay anyway uh but before we do let's do a little bit of paperwork so dunkirk concerns allied soldiers that are cornered by the german threat uh, in France, who must survive as a daring civilian rescue is mounted to get them home safe across the English Channel. Starring Fionn Whitehead and directed by Christopher Nolan, Dunkirk was released July 19, 2017. Make sure you check our show notes if you're not sure where you can watch it. I think it's available for rental on most places right now, not necessarily streaming. But uh, you can find out there. And as you mentioned, uh, it does. It has this sort of tight, specific concept that I, I agree. I, you could see it being like sort of in a in a student or a first film thing that some sort of um, a, an aspiring filmmaker comes across this idea and they're like, that's the perfect sort of structure for my script. But of course uh, it was made for $150 million, which is not usually what student films get made for. <laughs> not and it's the highest grossing war film of all time at 527 million back. That's very surprising. Um, right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's wild. And, and I think it goes to show that, he, he he got something he got something right you know it wasn't just the the Nolan fanboys showing up to this one yeah no you I mean you also had the Harry Styles uh, right, fanboys right. and girls showing up <laughs> good point just to see <laughs> Harry um, act but yeah. yeah yeah I mean I mean I don't I, we don't we don't have to devote a whole a whole section to Harry Styles I hear that he's not developing into a great actor with today this uh, this year's um what's that one don't worry darling he's getting a lot of a lot of criticisms. I, I think he works very well in this. Sure. Um, I think yeah, he, for, the boyish looks yeah. definitely play into what Nolan was doing with the mm-hmm. incredibly youthful casting across the board. Um, yeah. From everyone from like the lead characters, minus maybe Tom Hardy and Mark Rylance, but almost the entire background set of characters is like teenagers. Then they actually casted teenagers in this movie, which is pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Nolan made some comment in the behind the scenes about how he's was sick of seeing 40 year olds casted as teenagers. Mm-hmm. No, I think all those guys work. And, you know, I've mentioned a couple times the lack of star power. I don't want to deny that like Tom Hardy is in this. Um, 
Sort and of. Mark Rylance, who was who was big at the and moment, Kenneth and Branagh is still a, and uh, James yeah. Darcy, but like the. But the, I would say like none of them, none of them get star roles, zero. right? Like probably the most heroic is Hardy as Farrier, and he spends as he is wont to do. He spends ninety five percent of the movie with his face covered. Well, going back to this point about it being an intimate film, that's also like colossal in scale. I think the intimacy comes from the several perspectives we bounce between right and it's because Mm -hmm. we get very specific pinpoint like descriptions and personal standpoints on all these happenings of the war that we Mm -hmm. feel this intimately connected to it we get like tommy who is fion whitehead it's interesting that you even said like starring fion whitehead because he's got like eight lines in the movie and then yeah he's i he might get the most screen time, screen time yes, but like but not honestly i i i monkey wrenched that into our format in terms of well here we here's where we say who it stars right i don't know <laughs> stars michael kane's voice as uh as the as the third pilot like you know whoever <laughs> i didn't even piece that together that's what's that what, what's his think, what's his I, name something leader what squadron leader what that's that's Michael Caine over the radio. Right, he gets right. he gets dinged in the like he gets clipped in the first uh, sortie, and uh, and goes down. Here I was thinking he did it, finally did a movie without Michael Caine and yeah no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry uh, to to derail, but um, one more bit of paperwork. The tagline: When four hundred thousand men couldn't get home, home came for them. And I think that belies why, you know, as we said, maybe a bit of an irregular Nolan movie, but definitely an irregular war movie. Um, And, you know, we mentioned that this holds such a a special place in sort of Britain's history. Um, But as the subject for a war movie there, the victory is in retreat. It is it is successfully keeping people alive, not successfully killing the right target or taking the right hill. It is. It is this wonderful uh, oddity and uh, in that, you know, the entire success is not with really a, a bullet fired outside of the air, I suppose. But the air, the all, all the stuff that happens in the air is defense, right? It is not a gaining of new ground. Honest, it's a bit of a surrendering. No, it's accepting of, um, defeat. You know, the, the French that are left over in, in Dunkirk. Um, and as, as someone mentioned in the notes here, but um, something we just said made me think of it is you could see a much worse movie being framed around a boardroom where you have a number of generals saying, if we don't get at least 200,000 men back, we can't defend against the Germans. So we need at least 200,000. How are we going to do that? And people running around London being like, how many people are in the civilian Navy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they keep it entirely locked into the experience of the soldiers, which is you know part of that dichotomy. You've got these IMAX shots of the channel showing you yeah it's the british channel people can swim across it and have but like it's massive in the case of this situation but otherwise you're locked into these cockpits and into these you know beach trawlers and 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 on this beach which is exposed but still feels tiny one of the history points to consider is that this is thought of as a sliding doors moment for world war ii if the four hundred thousand soldiers hadn't made it back Germany probably the the Axis probably would have overtaken Britain, and America's entry into the war would have been very different. There'd be no foothold in Europe, and however the war would have ended, it would have been very different. Which I think is one of the reasons why Britain 
you know, obviously remembers this moment, not just as a, as a victory, but as a, as a turning point in the war. Yeah. The, um, or, or something held fast at least. Yeah. You know, uh, based on that tagline, you know, I, it's not like the most creative tagline in the whole world, but it's extremely important because it's instructive. And it's, just, mm. like, it's a similar approach to the text on screen. When you start watching this film, they, they, they give you some exposition just literally with putting text on screen for mm-hmm. all of us out there who maybe didn't learn about this in school growing up, like, like, like our friends in, in Britain did. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I tried to watch the, when I rewatched this for this podcast, I, I was trying to say, I wonder if they needed, if we really needed that, um, that text on screen, or could we have just figured that out you, mm-hmm. with the storyline? But um, I think there's a poignancy to it because of what exactly what you're saying it, it, of its relevance and it's that sliding door moment. So we really had to kind of double down. Or he probably felt like he needed to double down on the importance of this moment in the grand scale of things. Yeah, it's not like it's mm-hmm. an overly wordy intro text. So I like the dramatic tension that it kind of initiates right off the bat. The dialogue is dramatic and I'm, I kind of like that it sets you up that way. And then it lets you just enjoy the movie. I think that going back to one of the earlier points, cutting back to the boardroom or cutting back to even like even introducing a character like Churchill for a movie like this, you're opening a huge can of worms. You're talking about adding like at least 20 minutes to the runtime, which I think ruins mm-hmm. this movie because the runtime is one of my favorite things about this movie. Yeah. Agreed. Um, Especially in terms of Nolan. Yeah. But well, I think, yeah, Nolan does make pretty long epic movies, but I find that his runtimes are usually pretty fitting. I think he tends to have a good understanding of my audience attention lasts this amount of time if I do mm. if I execute this way. And to have such palpable tension for like two and a half hours is really, really almost impossible to do to a to a general audience. So an hour forty five, which this movie is, seems to be like the ideal compromise in terms of getting a lot of amazing content and footage, but still keeping your characters trapped in an in a unbearable space for an appropriate amount of time. And you got to think that you got to think that the fact that you know the the, the eyes of his countrymen are going to be on this movie and, and be on it in a very kind of yes mm. patriotic way, but probably in a very critical way if done wrong. Yeah, in a way, I, hopefully he took that as a, an opportunity to self edit quite a bit and like look at it through not just the lens of his personal taste which he does all the time in movies (laughs) but Mm -hmm. he looked at it really i think through the 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 taste and the the persona of his his country which i think helps with that runtime and it helps with the concision of this movie um it's it is a tight tight film and that's coming from a sprawling Mm -hmm. director (laughs) right yeah yeah and i think you're right that he 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 must have wisely had some priorities in place on this movie because again not that any of his other movies have gimmicks but you know like you know in interstellar it's like well you know you go through a wormhole and it's this incredible you got to see it in imax things like that and this is a very experience first movie even if you want to i'd say like a close in at least in terms of when they came out a close comparison would be 1917 which has the i would say a gimmick of being all in one shot in quotation marks which I think a little bit outshines the rest of the movie, which is always too. the problem with a oneer is, is it going to detract from the experience? Cause you're just sitting there going like, Oh, how do they do that? Like when, when's the cut? Like how do they hand off that camera? I think this is far more effective because again, yeah, it's putting that experience first. 
And as you said, the eyes of the countrymen were on it, but also there, there are stories that there were Dunkirk survivors who saw this movie. And I guess uh, Christopher Nolan was pleased to hear that they said the it, it felt very, very indicative of the experience, but also that his score and the, the sound design was louder than they remembered it. And I think he, it sounds like he very much liked that. that he, he, <laughs> he even amped that up because, um, I mean... I mean, we don't, we don't, we, we try to avoid um, talking about opening scenes as our scene of choice. So we didn't this time, but the opening scene, this, the, the sound of those gunshots is just kind of like, that makes you grip your, your armrest. And then an hour and 40 minutes later, you ungrip and you just sort of walk <laughs> out in a daze. It's the experience of this movie is incredible. Yeah, absolutely. When I, when I was watching it this week, I, I've seen this maybe, this was probably my fifth time watching Dunkirk. And mm. when I turned on the movie, you know, I put the Blu-ray in. I stepped back from the Blu-ray player. I was just kind of standing there watching the opening scene. And when the first gunshot went off, I was like, I was at the point where I was like, okay, do I need to like keep standing to adjust my stereo when the sound starts getting louder? And then the first gunshot mm. literally made me jump when I was standing and I, and I knew <laughs> it was coming. I was like, okay, it's loud enough. That's yeah. That's <laughs> what I remember from that first theater experience is I, I generally sit in maybe the back three rows of a given theater because um, I'm more as much as I'd love to sit close or central I'm I'm very sensitive to people talking and it's you hear them less when they're sitting in front of you're you you're missing that indie IMAX experience that Kyle had yeah. Tim yeah <laughs> but uh I remember you know so I generally got a pretty good view of the audience and those first gunshots go off and the whole theater reacted uh very viscerally um, and it was a, a great signal to just sort of what that that movie's going to make you sweat. Um, did you see this in IMAX? I was just going to ask. No, I think I saw it just over here at Landmark. Okay. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I it's the kind of thing where now I'm kicking myself. It's like, yeah, I got to go to a different city. Like, uh, like Tay and I live outside of Toronto, which is sort of our largest local city that would do um, 70 millimeter um, revivals, roadhouse and uh, and have like, um, you know, a roadshow, not roadhouse um, and have like IMAX theaters available. Um, I, I'm just going to start making the trek. I'm going to go see Oppenheimer in, in 70 millimeter. Me as well. Um, yeah. when, when Toronto gets a viewing. Uh, I, I um, did get to see this twice in IMAX, very luckily. Oh. Um, I made the trek out once, and then I was on a work trip the second time, and my boss ended up being like, hey, do you want to, like, check out this movie? I was like, I literally went, like, two days ago. Let's do it. And I got, like, <laughs> you know, I got, like, the T-shirt that's, like, Dunkirk and IMAX. It was pretty cool. I couldn't find it to wear today, but... I got the shirt form <laughs> from it. Um, and I just want to touch on like the one thing that we've already kind of said, but the sound of this movie, I honestly would rank it in like the top five, 10 of all time in my, from my perspective mm -hmm. in terms of sound design, sound editing, and just volume and the way that it's used yeah. against you as an audience member. It, you feel absolutely obliterated by the sound in this movie, which is, I think, um, the closest way that you can actually impact your audience on or like almost like harm your audience the way that the characters in the film feel violated it's yeah we've talked about on this podcast before like i think even just in the last couple episodes that sound is your most textured way to put someone into an experience when you when it's a a largely visual experience right there are no there are no odors and obviously you can't get the textures you can't get physical sensations across sound is going to be the thing that really pushes them over the edge and the sound design i i would agree this is an all-timer for sound design 
think very clearly they understand that that's what mattered and that was that was sort of like the um that was the texture of the soldiers experience was gunshots was bombs and as so i mentioned the 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 german stukas which are the the smaller planes that dive bomb the beach and strafe them with guns the stukas had these things called jericho trumpets which were mounted on the on the frames and there are arguments as to which what the chicken and the egg effect here because they're saying like oh it was like sort of like um psychological warfare because these these trumpets would take in the air as you would dive bomb and their pitch would raise while they also got closer and while you also have the you know the effect where all the sound is compressed at the front of the moving vehicle um, the doppler effect right all these things together it sort of announced (laughs) you know death from above um you're you're about to die um but they also argued that the the original design reason for the jericho trumpet was that it was an audible way to gauge airspeed when other other um, uh, tools failed on the aircraft. Interesting. Either way, it's a great asset for Christopher Nolan. For sure, <laughs> and and yeah, and the effect is is on, on the audience is undeniable. Mm-hmm. I, I right when this movie came out, I was working at Vox Media and. One of the things that Vox.com is famous for is explainer videos. They do mm-hmm. these amazing um, uh, explainers with their journalists who can really do an explainer on whatever they want. They they oftentimes also do all the uh, motion graphic animation and produce produce the videos there, themselves. But they do the research, they choose the topic, and they're really given a lot of free reign to, to create really great explainers. And one of the journalists that I worked closely with there... Um, his name was uh, Christoph um, Haberson, and he he did a Dunkirk explainer on another kind of audio effect that is really prevalent in in the movie, which I you know was I was just gung ho about it at the time because I was just had seen it twice in the theater, and I started this new job and with this guy who got to interview some people around the making of the film, and and that uh, that effect is called uh, is really called the Shepherd tone shepherd tone yeah Yeah. and this is an audio effect that is used throughout the film where um when you take basically three octaves of a note your middle octave stays at a constant volume your top octave is basically going from a high high volume to a low volume and your bottom octave is going from a low volume to a high volume and when you play all that at once it sounds like this never-ending upward spiral of doom and you can do it downward mm-hmm. as well but like the, if you're going up it actually f- sounds more hectic and more uh electric and this is this shepherd tone is used throughout dunkirk including in the scene that we're going to talk about today um mm-hmm. but that was really kind of another little moment of my time with this movie is being kind of starting a new job at a company i respected deeply and seeing their journalists be able to have free reign to go and design and build really cool stories around anything they mm-hmm. wanted including you know this cool little sound effect in dunkirk that is very yeah cool. i actually i i watched um your your colleague's video before we did this um i'll link it it's a it's a great explainer on the shepherd tone he has a great metaphor in that um to explain it where he says it's like an audi- auditory uh barber's pole yeah exactly. so, you know like with the stripes going up and just kind of never ends it's that kind of effect and uh, Nolan has added, it's actually used in part of the score for The Prestige as well. And it's used as part of a sound effect for the, like, Batman's, uh, like, bat cycle, motorcycle thing. It's called the Bat Pod, Tim. <laughs> the Bat Pod. I was just, I was really blanking on that. Uh, yeah, that's, there There go my bona fides. I'm going to get torn apart online. 
Um, but no, that yeah, the Shepard drone is really cool, and I think that's an opportunity to jump into Zimmer's score, um, which I also think is maybe well, like I think like top three Zimmer scores. Because um, uh, again, I I think it was another example, just like Nolan, of him understanding that you have to have some priorities in this, and less is more for the most part, right? So. You mentioned you have the shepherd tone, which is great for ratcheting up this tension. Um, and and I'll link to another. There's this great medium piece um, that actually looks into the music of it and how um, in there. There's a one of the tracks uh, in the soundtracks called "The Oil," obviously referring to that that sort of like climactic scene at the end. Um, and Zimmer actually wrote three different parts one of which is happening very rapidly, one of which is happening at a medium, and one of it's just very long. So they represent each of the three storylines, and each of them is um, performing a shepherd's tone. And even if you don't read sheet music, check out the link in the show notes. You can see sort of how these three things are aligned. Um, so it's not just... I think, I think like, you know, it would be impressive enough to just say, like, let's just work in a shepherd's tone as, like, an audio drop. But it's actually woven into the composition of the music, um, which was uh, very impressive, I think. And then, I mean, other things that he used, I guess they set the the beats per minute off of the the rhythm of the boat engine on the Moonstone. Um, he recorded and, and used Christopher Nolan's own pocket watch um, for the, the sort of tick-tocking. And I do think, like, throughout this movie... There are times without score, but they're very few and far between. And largely, you either hear the clock ticking or you hear a heartbeat. And it just... That's one of the reasons why this movie was tough to do on this podcast is that there's almost no scenes. It's almost just moments. But you have, like, those gunshots start and you're kind of not done until the credits roll, right? It just... It's a seamless, ratcheted, tense sequence. Which is why, like we said... What we said earlier about the runtime is why... That's why this all works so seamlessly. It, it just... Everything works in tandem to make this a very tense, brief experience. Um, but I think brief might not be selling it well enough. Just it, it mm-hmm. feels like the perfect runtime to cover all the angles that we need, but without it feeling like too much to like uh, take in. I feel like it's at mm-hmm. that perfect level. I just, before we leave Zimmer's score, I also did just want to recognize that while it's very minimal and it is used to just um, sort of get that experience across and keep time on your mind and and that, you know, this there's a marching doom approaching, um, it does twice break into a more conventional film score when it heavily samples um, uh, Edward Elgar's Nimrod uh, variation. So Elgar is a a celebrated British composer. So it's again, a very patriotic thing to call upon, but also Nimrod, which is one of 14 variations um, referring to like the great hunter Nimrod. Um, uh, it's popular in its own right. And it's used at British funerals, memorial services. Um, it's always played at the Cenotaph Whitehall in London. So obviously it's very much associated with sort of like British war history. So I think it's, it's a, it's an obvious call for that. He doesn't lift it entirely. He uses his own versions of it, and he actually refers to it as variation 15 because there were 14 in Elgar's mm. original, um, which that may be very full of Zimmer. It may be very appropriate. I'll leave that, that for you. But I find it maybe because of my experience with my music background, my music education background and classical music study and things like that, it's incredibly moving when, you know, Branagh is like, 
you know, there they are. I can see them. And they're like, what is it? And it's like home. And then Nimrod drops and then they leave it again and they do the oil sequence. And then I think the next time it hits is right when the wheels touch down on the Spitfire mm. on the beach, which which brings me right to tears. I can't I can't handle it. It's it, too much. It is like you can sit there and go, wow, this is like just either master manipulation or just something really, really, really transcendent happening. And I, mm-hmm. I kind of go with the latter. Like I think yeah. that going from those those minor tones to that major that major overture tone mm-hmm. is it, it just it, it instantly makes you as a human being feel something. And that's a real mm-hmm. thing. And that's why we love cinema. That's why we love movies. And this is like a master class at that kind of crafting that moment where you're building up to this this pitch just really a tone change from a Mm -hmm. minor to a major key and it literally has the effect of like like crushing your soul and Mm -hmm. and making you feel you can't not feel something at that moment right so yeah it's part of why this movie does what it does super super well but also it's it's why it's why that we want to kind of break this type of movie down and kind of understand these little elements of how they're being wielded to help us, you know, have these, these feels, you know? Yeah. I feel, I feel like in that moment, you know, when the soldiers are like, see the green shores of of Britain for the first time. And when the plane wheels touch down, Mm. like those are moments well earned and the score kind of lets us know that like you've earned this reprieve from the horrors of what we've just spent an hour and a half witnessing now we're at the point like where you do get this dramatic kind of like you get you can like let your shoulders drop a little bit you can kind of ease up and i think that goes hand in hand with what you guys are saying just it just is such a magnitudinal moment of the film in on many levels mm-hmm. yeah it's it there's such catharsis in it it's so powerful and it is it is this I think you're right. It's just like through its editing and its use of the assets available to it in the cinematic form, they really, they really masterfully earn these moments without me making them feel like trite or like way too overly patriotic and things like that. Because war movies yeah. always struggle with that. There's that quote that all war, all war movies are propaganda because there's no way that they can't make it look exciting or interesting, or they largely they haven't so far because they still they got to sell tickets. They hit, butts and seats again this is adulating a strategic retreat which is something that you normally don't but it's so important to britain elgar's so important to britain there are all these great things that align and 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 work in this movie that i think if you were just one step to the to the right or to the left or a couple decibels higher or quieter or things like that i think it's this real fine balancing act yeah i guess in celebration of like the tradition of british humor which is which tends to be self-deprecating. This is almost like a self-deprecating story about like failure, right? So it does kind of work. Mm -hmm. It does work patriotically on that level, I think. Yeah. I mean, I mean, again, so critical and like for, for as saccharine as it can be to use something like Elgar in this moment, there are all these ways in which this movie didn't go, didn't go there again. Like there's no voiceover of the, our darkest hours thing. Like Harry Styles reads part, part of it in the newspaper, but honestly, he doesn't finish it. And it's not like, you know, it's not like, um, so many of other Nolan movies end with like a monologue from Michael Caine or <laughs> do not go gently, you know, all those things like that. And he really holds back here. Right. And it's, it's more like the most powerful sort of concluding aspect of the movie is the, uh, 
the blind man who's just telling them like you know well done well done you made it back who i think is i think that's nolan's uncle i heard okay i saw a nolan in the credits i didn't know if i I figured there was a relation Mm. but uh, i mean with that i mean we we, we've we've definitely um indulged and covered a lot of this movie we should i think hop into our scene at this point let's do it okay so as to mentioned it's pretty tough to zone in on a particular scene or to like even outline like this is a scene in this movie. I don't know. This is our case for it being a scene, I guess, is it's a number of storylines converge at this point and we're at an hour two seventeen into the film and we go to about an hour ten thirty. So it's an eight minute scene where all these storylines converge from the air, the sea and the beach so Colin's plane crash lands in the sea as Mr. Dawson with his son Peter race uh, to save him. Back on the beach, Tommy and a group of English soldiers take refuge in a beached Dutch ship, which quickly turns into a new kind of hell as the Germans begin using the hull as target practice. Uh, the scene stars Jack Loudon as Collins, Mark Rylance as Mr. Dawson, and Fionn Whitehead as Tommy. There are many other characters in the scene which we'll get into. So I guess... Because I joined the discussion late on which scene we were kind of doing, guys. Why did we land on this scene? I mean, I uh, I liked, first of all, the, the thing when I was ca- sort of looking for, okay, what's a convergence point that isn't the obvious convergent points, like the oil on the water, things like that, where we try to avoid our opening scene and our, our climactic scenes. Uh, I like just the symmetry of, you know, Collins is drowning and uh, the... Tommy and the boys, as we'll call them, are drowning in that Dutch trawler. Um, and then I, I love one of the things I wanted to talk about. Because the other thing I, the other one I proposed was that opening scene where they're they're bringing the guy in the stretcher and they're trying to sneak onto the ship that way or cheat their way onto the ship. I like that this movie is made up of moments that are little tiny Dunkirk dilemmas. Yes, they're always the same thing, right? Like in that stretcher scene, one of the one of the events in it is when they have to cross that that board that's across the broken pier and you're like oh that's dunkirk you have to get from that side to the other and this like i with collins drowning in this in this cockpit number one this movie is about four hundred thousand men and yet like you spend so much time in this cockpit uh as the water comes up on collins i it's again it's that dichotomy it's the the massive english channel and the one pilot that we're worried about um and then it's just yeah it's the it's the it's the fact that the Germans are the threat the the Axis powers are the threat you never see them for the, which is one thing we didn't mention in the general discussion um, but I mean the the channel is the threat is is the obstacle itself and here it's directly sort of weaponized against Collins um, as as it moves up in that cockpit I love that sequence and then I think the the Dutch trawler sequence is important to talk about too because it's kind of the moral low point of this movie and i also think it's maybe the weakest written part of the movie um all things saying you know i love this movie this nolan's probably nolan's best movie i think there are some interesting things to talk about in just terms of the the writing i i there's a lot of good directions to go off there kyle do you have anything you want to start off with yeah i mean i think it this is again it's so hard to call a scene a scene in this film this this is obviously a master class in cross-cutting that's what this whole movie is experimenting with that's what mm. the, the the remit of the the concept is is like how can you cross-cut between different time frames and tell a cohesive story where the tension you don't break the tension as you move from air uh, moment to from from i guess uh, location to location time frame to time frame 
mm-hmm. that's what this is a great example of how again there, he's aligning these these uh, moments uh, t- to have an it, kind of exponential effect on the viewer mm-hmm. um, and I also like that there is it is kind of has a, a, a mini cathartic moment in it too you know when when um, we actually break through the the cockpit to, to rescue Collins like one of my favorite things I mean and we can talk about dialogue because I want to get into it a little bit um, I think the best line of dialogue is also delivered in this scene like and, mm-hmm. and that literally is just when Collins finally pops out of the water and he just says Afterman. yeah and it's like i love the concision of the, and the power of a single word that communicates so many things it communicates a ton a ton of character development around who that who he is as a person as a pilot as a human being it also conveys a sense of place it's such a british way of it's um, so stiff upper lip. Yeah, it's, it's just like it's I just like drowned. Like get keeping me keeping calm me a, and carrying on. Give me a blanket and a cup of tea, please. He's not like shaking. He's not you know. He's not the shivering soldier. Right, he's like, right. Afternoon, just you know, this is the job. Yep, and uh, that that for me, like that is that that right there is how I want to write scripts and how I want characters to like take the power that's imbued in that single word and kind of communicate so much with it. So. I mean, it's interesting. I I didn't know that you felt that the dialogue in the in the the Dutch ship was the some of the weakest stuff. But we should we should get into that and yeah, I can I can qualify that a bit better. But before we do get into that, I do want to. I think you mentioned sort of like the way that the two temporalities work on one another. I think is fantastic. I think there's a real case to say like if you look at Interstellar's third act and the cross cutting, which takes place over the course of like feels like a half hour. It's a yeah. very long cross cut of like Murph looking at a watch which for like feels like for like four hours and i say i i love yeah, interstellar that's that like death, famous like, piece of score right where it's like I, it's like yeah. pretty much a 12 minute piece of score that's the scene yeah right it's so much and then you jump to dunkirk and you're like wow he went from like i think what is maybe a, a bit of a a work in progress cross-cutting in the third act of interstellar to like mastering it here and one of the effects that you have is like you have these two storylines cut back between each other. Cause the, the one that we don't really get a ton of is the sea in the sequence, which is a shame, but it's really just when, when um, Mark Rylance's son, Peter sort of pulls Collins out. And as you said, they have that great captain. But I, scene. I do think the um, earlier, we may as well just cross off this storyline with the two moments that we do see. Cause I did want to say mm-hmm. at the end with that line from Collins, I just love that delivery. Just like you guys were saying, I think mm-hmm. he like takes that one second to like look at who's reaching out to him. And then he's like, and it's, it's a great moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I did have to say like Mark Rylance in the one line from the scene that we're covering today that he has absolutely amazing delivery of that line too, mm-hmm. where he's like, God, come on, there's no shoot. He's probably dead. Tell me, I hear you, Peter. I hear you. Maybe alive. Maybe. Uh, like yeah. the the look on his face, and it's because I think it all stems from the fact he like doesn't turn around to address Peter until he's like reached his breaking point, and then he turns mm-hmm. and he. Ha- it's like it's just a line that only Mark Rylance or actors of that top top caliber can deliver like that, and. I had to call out that moment. Yeah, there's a lot of emotion in it. Because mm-hmm. honestly, you, you find out later that he had a son who was a pilot who had died, who flew hurricanes, and all of that is given greater purchase. And 
one thing we didn't mention this movie really benefits from rewatching yes. right like there is yep. there's so much to be gained even though the first time you watch it you're just sort of going to be living it you can maybe on the fourth or fifth watch you could start thinking about it as you live it but no that's a great point yeah. about rylance uh we shouldn't just jump away from him yeah but now we can, can we just get point out other fun scenes <laughs> well, uh, can, before ahead, we Kyle. do that can we just point out that his son peter looks shockingly similar to martha plimpton's character steph in the goonies i don't know why but i can't unsee those that's, two yeah that's they not look wrong very identical <laughs> i just can't it's so it's so funny i always thought he looked all i know familiar. is he's got a great sweater this is this movie's a great sweater movie and peter may might have the best i think one. that was oh, from yeah. nolan's sweaters um, oh yeah he does kind of look like a little nolan too right like um but anyway so back to the two temporalities i think you've got Collins drowning um and then you've got the trawler with their sort of like it's more of the mental side where they all start questioning one another but they're also dealing with the the uh the the target practice I think one makes what would be fast feel slow and vice versa right so you draw out the drowning and ratchet up the horror and you speed up the sort of descent into paranoia in the trawler they, I think both one acts on the other to inverse what how it would have played out normally. Hmm, that's interesting. I agree with I agree with you there, and and yeah, you know, I you can make kind of that argument that maybe there's like the beginnings of a Lord of the Flies sort of sequence happening inside the the mm-hmm. boat where you know it's it's finger pointing and it's and it's every man for himself all of a sudden in a way and and ganging up. But you know, I think what it what I like about that sequence is really what it does for the for the character of Tommy like it's his mm-hmm. it's really all to set up him as our our conduit into this story I mean he's the person that we're we, we meet first in the film right and he's the storyline that we kind of are f- kind of become most accustomed to following and feeling like like this is our conduit right so mm-hmm. so I think it's an important scene to kind of again it's a learning moment it's a it's a it's a character building moment it's a it's a it's an opportunity for us to kind of see the good when everything's going bad and so mm-hmm. maybe perhaps the dialogue's a little clunky there and it gets a little lord of the fly esque but i think that it, it it helps us for when that final sequence of him getting hoisted out of the being the last individual to be hoisted out of the water covered in covered in um oil and seeing that it is essentially our conduit was the last person saved it helps the payoff of that like dramatically and it's Mm -hmm. not like i didn't go into that final scene thinking that that wouldn't be him but even when it you find out and it finally kind of reveals that it is him again because we've gone through this this character journey with him the the payoff is earned i i feel like writing this part of the script was probably a real challenge you're dealing with a movie that you're um, you're an hour in and there hasn't been a scene this riddled with dialogue yet and you're now at the mm-hmm. point where your audience is getting used to this tone and pacing and minimal dialogue kind of uh kind of spread sporadically throughout the movie but at this point you have to deliver a ton of intense dialogue in an intense situation in a situation that honestly is so well set up just the idea of like bunch of people hiding out in the hull of a ship and then germans randomly start taking target practice i think conceptually that is phenomenal thriller material right there mm-hmm. um and yeah as kyle said there's like this lord of the flies style dissension i do think that it works 
similarly to how we've talked about other aspects of the film though it's a microcosm of a conflict on the beach that helps put bigger parts of the film into perspective for us because it just Mm -hmm. to me it always makes me think okay so this is one microcosm where uh, dissension is kind of raised and this must have been happening all over the beach right this must have been happening in different areas with different groups of people and it just kind of helps legitimize or maybe help me picture it in my head a bit better like what Mm. this looks like i don't think that the acting is at its best here i don't think plausibility is at its best here but i i think in terms of what it does for the greater effect of the movie is really important um the one continuity thing that i thought was strange is the guy who stupidly goes to try and plug the holes first who seems to get shot in the face and make a lot of noise and then we don't know what happens to that guy he maybe died yeah, I think he takes like some some boat shrapnel or something. That's what I assumed but too. I didn't knows. think it was like a straight. But you're bullet. right; they don't really end that story. And, and his no, like the the cool part that I wish they focused a bit more on was how much noise he was making and how they didn't want to alert the soldiers on the outside of the boat. And then mm-hmm. they do that cutaway, and when they cut back to the ship, that guy is just like silent or pro- and probably dead. But we, we lose all that tension from that moment. And that's my only gripe. I with think it. you've definitely seen in. I think I definitely seen that sequence in another war movie where there's someone making too much noise and then everyone else has to weigh like, are we going to kill this guy to save the rest of us? Um, But I guess I should at this point qualify my sort of dig at the dialogue. I don't I think it's not entirely realistic dialogue. I think it's a wonderful line, which is probably why it's kept in. But it's highly poetic and it's not something I would see these guys coming up with in a high tense high tension setting where he goes survival's not fair it's fear and it's greed fate pushed through the bowels of men no one's just (laughs) coming up with that on the spot that's that's extremely authored and that's that's sort of my gripe it's a lot like fate put pushed through the bowels of men could be a tagline a bit of a highfalutin (laughs) one but maybe if we saw him reading um, a book of poetry earlier or something tim that's the thing i think it's and it's not that's not even harry styles it's the other like sort of key suspicious guy um where basically tommy's saying no it's not fair like he's because because if you watch the movie with the you know on your rewatch you can see that this french guy who takes the name of gibson helps out in almost every mole sequence he he's always he's never putting himself first he's just trying to get out of dunkirk which i i like the idea that this is kind of like recognizing from the british perspective like can you really blame them like there are key allies if they weren't for them we would have been overtaken already they're holding the line in dunkirk it's it's that character Um, who has probably the most horrifying perspective once revealed in this scene mm -hmm. to me at least like putting myself in that soldier's shoes is probably the worst out of anybody on the beach because you just everyone's yelling a foreign language at you and pointing rifles (laughs) at you have you noticed he hasn't said a word Desire not speak English. If he does this with an accent thick in his sauerkraut sauce. And then you, when there's that mo- there's like that thirty seconds where you actually think he's a German, and you're like, oh no. And then when it's revealed he's French, it's almost like, oh, that's almost worse. A frog. A bloody frog. A cowardly little pew jumping frog. Who's Gibson, eh? Some naked dead Englishman lying on that sand. Because now you're a coward mm. running away from your. Well, it's more complex. Line. Yeah, it's, that's probably a better way of putting. We it. know what to do with a German, yes. and uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that that just adds this sense of confusion, and it really makes me feel for that character and 
like this movie is so good at putting you in the shoes of the characters that it just makes you feel uncomfortable in that situation. Yeah. I, I, um, I, I, one thing that we can get into as well about this, you know, I don't know if we're ready to change gears a little bit from the dialogue, but I, I, I always think it's interesting, you know, starting with the dark Knight. you know, Nolan started doing random, not random, but specific scenes in IMAX and other scenes, mm-hmm. not in IMAX. And this happens to be a scene that is, at least from the air side of it, is is shot in IMAX. You get the full frame effect. And I always was kind of curious, you know, what what made him choose one or the over another to be like, oh, this is perfect for IMAX. This one's not so much. And I'm going to just kind of continually choose. But I think it's interesting that, you know, obviously IMAX is super, super critical um, for that experience when you're mounting you know, large cameras on the wing of a, an actual plane so that you can see that he's putting these planes into into the air and doing these real aeronautic acrobatics with it and really kind of creating the scale and scope and st- st- style and wants all of that captured in this immersive format. But, that, I mean, they're still full frame when you're inside the cockpit with Collins and it's flooding. It's still that full frame Mm-hmm. view and yeah. so that, i love that choice i think that's really really uh, impactful and and again like the camera's inches from his face and yet you see like a pretty wide angle shot of the whole um the whole experience that's happening to him i don't know i, I just think that's an interesting choice to continue with that full frame format um in even these very cramped quarters I think that's a great point to recognize is that he's not just saying I need the IMAX to show that I got, you know, real, I got real planes. Um, Look at how big the channel is. You know, look at how many men are on the beach, all these obvious sort of um, indications of scale, but that scale is important in these intimate moments too. They're not just something where it's like, well, why bother with an IMAX? I think that's a great point. And, and a, a sort of nice behind the scenes thing is that I guess in that sequence, um, the plane that had the camera inside sank faster than they predicted. Um, so it took so long to retrieve the plane that the IMAX camera housing filled with water. Um, but our cinematographer, who we haven't mentioned by name yet, Hoyt Van Hoytema, um, he used an old movie technique of keeping the film wet and shipped it to Los Angeles, still submerged, and got it processed before it dried out. And that's the take that's in the movie, is the one that sunk. Unbelievable. That's so cool. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, I remember the stories coming out. I don't know if you guys remember this publicity bit, but about Nolan crashing a World War II plane that he wasn't supposed to crash mm-hmm. with a camera mounted on it. And the whole thing was like, yeah, with the plane plus the million dollar camera, this was like a multi-million dollar mistake. mistake <laughs> yeah. On set. And I just remember that being one of the first stories of production that emerged from this. And I was like, wait, he got a World War II, like a real World War II plane and flew it into the ocean? <laughs> Like mm-hmm. it, was, it got me so excited to see this movie. It, it did all the hype necessary. Yeah, you have to wonder now that, you know, um, you know Top Gun Maverick has proven that they have right. these very small, you know, mm-hmm. well, basically what they did is they, they can take the, the processing power plant of the IMAX um, camera and put it in a, a place up somewhere else and then run lenses with lines to different parts of a cockpit. Um mm-hmm. I wonder if Nolan will have to make these choices moving forward. Will he have to decide in the future, oh, this is an IMAX shot, this isn't, or if he can just take the technology that exists and now it's more of like just a, a cropping or, or an editing choice on, on how he pl- plays with this notion of 
what's worth that 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 scale and format versus another scene or if that just kind of becomes old hat you know i did hear that the bulkiness and specifically actually the loudness of the camera itself because it's it's running film through it and that tends to be very loud on a large format camera um so they had a ton of issues on set like trying to record or trying to get any on set on site audio in addition to it being bulky and having to come up with unique rigs to mount this camera on to get the shots they needed. I mean, you're talking about a master filmmaker in Nolan and a master cinematographer in Van Hoytema, but it still was challenging. So I think that's a great point. Like the heat, I think there will have to be adjustments like any innovator. Nolan will take a look at what was easy and what was hard for him on something like this and hopefully continue to just innovate. I've not seen enough behind the scenes of Tenet to under to know like what he did differently with his cameras for that film, but I'm I'm guessing he'll just do something similarly massive and cinematic for Oppenheimer. So yeah, it's my not understanding like style is gonna shift that much. Yeah, my understanding is that like since Dunkirk, IMAX camera technology has really come a long way. Where it got smaller, I think at Tenet was where Hoyt started shoulder mounting IMAX cameras and moving around with them. Because they, he did have a couple on Dunkirk that were just Dunkirk too. Well, they were, they were technically shoulder mounts, but (laughs) the thing is bigger than his entire torso on his shoulder. So it's like, is that really a shoulder Mm -hmm. mount at that point? I don't think. But then I think I also, I'm trying to remember what I want to. It might have been Nope, because a lot of Nope was done with IMAX. But I do think there was another development that made them quieter. Because I don't think, I think they were able to shoot more just straight up dialogue scenes on IMAX for Nope as well. Okay, that makes sense. I guess the question is, are they shooting film or digital? Is really another mm-hmm. another big question there. So yeah, and well, who the knows fun if... the fun thing about that behind the scenes fact by Tim about the IMAX camera going into the water is that if that was digital, that camera's toast. If that, yeah. but because it's preserved through the magic of film, mm-hmm. it's it, it's in the final cut of the movie, and that's just beautiful. Totally. Point proven, Nolan. All movies should be on film now. We get it. We get it. <laughs> but no, I mean, so another thing I want to talk about is just that I do think this is a necessary moral low point because I think a lot of this movie, without this part in the Dutch trawler, would be like, you know, British people making the most of the situation, sort of like just maintaining a tight grip while they wait for home to come get them, yada, yada. Like a lot of more like Branna and stuff like that and like no real pushed to the brink by by the horror and the stress and i think you would not it would not be as palpable if you didn't have people like you have in the trawler where they start to succumb to the stress of the situation where they start to have to make calls on what's one life worth another if it's german if it's french if it's a dutch fisherman there i think is a very necessary point to come back from and as you said like tommy it's a part of his character is that and his development is that even in this time, he holds fast and tries to defend their ally, um, this unnamed Frenchman. Um, I think I think it's a very necessary part because I don't think there's as much depth um, to the emotion or the themes of this movie. If it is more of a straight line of, let's just hold on tight. The boats are coming. We've got air cover, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, because that's just more so waiting around. This is actually like pushing the plot forward or pushing characters into a an uncomfortable realm where they are forced to make decisions mm-hmm. uh, versus just kind of letting things happen to themselves. So I think you're right. This is a necessary point at 
you know, we're an, we're two thirds of the way through the movie, so it is at that point where you need to start ratcheting up the tension. You need to introduce different character dynamics, and I think this moment captures all that while delivering a really tense scene. Um, up to this point, we don't know much about Tommy as a character. Uh, we don't know exactly where um, Harry Styles' character Alex really stands morally. Because uh, he's said a few things to raise suspicions about the French soldier, but he hasn't come out and said them blatantly yet until mm. this moment. So we get a lot about his character. And then I think this back and forth ultimately reveals just uh, a similar sense of desperation and humanity on both sides of the French and the British in this moment, right? Which I think mm. is really important to show the equal, the shared fear. Yeah. I think the lesson here also just from a screenwriting point of view is when you have a movie where inherently the ultimate antagonist is is not in any scene other than the occasional airplane or the occasional mm-hmm. like step into the frame at the very end there with, with uh, Farrier when you, know, you see, oh, yeah. see the, the Germans kind of enter the frame for the first time, mm-hmm. you you still need an antagonist for a scene. Like yeah. every scene needs a form of antagonist, you know? And so mm-hmm. in the case of, you know, in, in earlier in the film, you know, our shivering soldier played by Killian Murphy is the antagonist for that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this scene, they need an antagonist. So I think the big lesson here is in screenwriting, regardless of where your primary antagonist is uh, in, the, mm-hmm. in the realm of things, you need a scene, you need someone to be the counterpoint, counterpoint in a scene. You need an antagonist for a scene. So it's yeah. a good thing to remember when, we're like toying with our noodling on our next screenplay or what mm-hmm. have you. That's a great point. That is a great point. Yeah. We kind no, of I see mean, that if... at the, in the scene we, we debated covering where they're trying to get the stretcher onto the boat and they're just, it's just obstacle after obstacle. Like, you know, British mm-hmm. soldier tells them they can't get on the boat. It's like technically not like a, an evil antagonist or anything like that, but an, an opposition to Obstacle, our protagonist's yeah. goals. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, I don't know about you guys, but as as we said, like picking any one scene's a little difficult. And uh, I mean, we got a lot in about the movie and I think we pulled some salient points out about this one, but uh, it's better I got, for me. I got one more question for you guys about the scene. Yeah. And t- as far as Collins in the plane in the cockpit, do you really think an oar could break what a gun couldn't break? I think he was using a one of those kind of like... It looked like it's a, like, it's like a trowel or something. Yeah, right? it's like a it's, oh, okay. it's got I mean, a little hook like on it, metal hook on it, sort of thing. Gotcha. I, I do think what Collins is limited by is like he's got he's doing like the like a six inch punch, right? Like <laughs> I the, get it. Like I just, Bruce Lee in there. I think I if a kid a kid's got a, kid. a full arc with an oar, I believe it. Who knows? <laughs> I, I I do I, I do think once it's broken and I like the 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 shot that they the the pov shot that you see that very wide angle of peter with it and it is a cathartic moment that is kind of what i was talking about and why this scene Mm -hmm. does feel self-contained and a great example is that that is a cathartic moment that kind of allows you to kind of see this like blue sky this (laughs) angelic looking kid (laughs) who's Mm -hmm. like pulling you to safety um it's 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 a one of the few POV shots that you get in the film, and I think it does a really good job of of giving you that kind of like relief and that safety feeling that that mm-hmm. you need. Yeah, and it's all brought together by the one simplified line of. But yeah, no, that's great. I think with that we can run to some shout outs, uh, get out of the scene a little bit. Uh, Kyle, you wanna you wanna kick us off? 
Yeah, you mentioned uh, you mentioned it before, but you know, kind of a big shout out to man uh, Tom Hardy's mask acting. This guy, mm-hmm. uh, between you know his portrayal of Max in Fury Road, to his you know kind of interesting portrayal of Bane in, in mm-hmm. Dark Knight Rises. This guy is like the best in the biz with like acting with his eyes and delivering a line with his like I guess the way he focuses his eyes and moves his eyebrows. It's so mm-hmm. convincing. It's so like, you know, he is like you said earlier the most heroic figure in the whole kind of film feeling um and it, it's all done with just the way that he can kind of emote um behind mm-hmm. a mask and man, it's just I I I buy it. I buy it really really well i'll also say that you know you know coming from a guy who works at a watch publication like worn and wound man dunkirk is an incredible uh example of top-notch watch casting for a film Mm -hmm. so (laughs) in the movie um again farrier played by tom hardy wears an omega um ck 2129 which is a perfect kind of like period correct timepiece for uh, an it's RFA. like a pilot's chronograph? Uh, I don't know if it's a necessarily chronograph, it's but it has a timing bezel oh, okay. on yeah. it that allows him to kind of like track his track fuel. track his the, the elapsed time essentially. Yeah. Um, and really, just you know, it's a it's a it's a geek out moment for any watch mm-hmm. person when a not when a watch just doesn't only appear in a movie, but actually becomes a a plot device in the film i think for Mm. me that's like the best kind of watch casting and yeah it's if if you're any kind of a watch fan this is like a a a grade a watch spotting moment so shout out i will i will say just on the note yeah on the note of tom hardy i do think like his storyline feels like him and nolan were like having a drink and like had a dare where they're like can we do as little as possible and try to make people (laughs) care about you where like the tension is in like you know, like chalk um, calculations on the dash of the plane, um, and yeah, just like he puts his he puts his mask and his his mic on at the beginning, and he's got the goggles, and that's it. But there's still like these highly effective moments, like where um, you know Collins is like he's on me, and he goes, "I'm on him." No emotion, no emphasis, so no nothing, and you're like, "Yeah, he's on him. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's he's going after him. So this is good. so exciting, and there's it, so little le- le- leaned into." It it really adds to the realism of a hardened pilot, though, mm-hmm. right? I think this really sells the character, the fact that he's playing it pretty nonchalantly, pretty tough, but also not not emoting very much in his dialogue just kind of letting his eyes do the work and seeming like a very focused, legitimate pilot. Mm-hmm. And I, and let's just, we have to just call out the, the uh, <laughs> gliding takedown of the, uh, the bomber. What a cool, like you realize it's, it's, you know, that, that, that plane that, that you hear those, those, those horns that you mentioned and all of a sudden mm-hmm. you don't hear them and you just see the, the glider yeah. <laughs> effect. Fly and there, there's by. some, yeah, there's something very kind of un, like ghostly where you see it like yeah. and the propellers not moving oh gosh, and you can't so hear good. as Rylance's character says, like you can't hear the Rolls Royce Merlin, yeah but he's just like this specter, like protecting his, his countrymen over the beach. It's so powerful. It almost feels like one of those Hollywood style moments, but it's not 
done like one. It just, mm-hmm. you know, like if you said, like, at the, and at the end of the movie, the pilot's going to lose all power to their plane, and he's going to have to take down this final plane with no power and glide in. Well, I like, when I, when I saw it in the theater, I, you're sitting there, and you're like, oh, is he going to crash? And then it's like, no, he's an experienced pilot. He's out of fuel, but he has a place to land, and he's going to land, and it's just, mm-hmm. again, it's like, you know, it's Colin saying, oh, well, this is the job. This is how it works. I'm a prisoner of war now, so be it. The the I did I did hear that the pilot that that story of having to land on the on the beach of Dunkirk in that real life pilot that this is loosely based on did escape though. Ooh, so that's a Whoa, wow. fact. Dunkirk two, <laughs> Nolan's <laughs> Nolan's <laughs> next trilogy after after Dark Knight. Um, Directed by no, Wally and I mean I, I heard that the so they used a like a a Spitfire from World War Two to do that sequence, and when it landed in the sand. It sunk down deeper in the sand than they realized, and then they were fighting against the tide. They were literally fighting against time. Very Nolan thing to get this relic out of the sand wow. before it before it started taking on water and rusting. That's so um, funny. But sorry, we keep talking about Tom Hardy's storyline forever. Uh, my shout out is Killian Murphy. I just want to I want to give this guy props because he's one of Nolan's most like reliable people uh he was in the running to be batman originally he auditioned multiple times and was in the top couple of people before bane or uh bane bale was selected um i think he would have been an odd uh batman i think he's a little bit too his face is a little bit too something to be an outright hero um but i think he's wonderful in all these other roles that he shows up in for nolan uh and dunkirk is the shivering soldier is no exception i think he's a very powerful and very necessary presence. And I just want to say, you know, congrats to him. He finally gets to lead a Nolan movie next year, and I can't wait to see it. Very excited to see what Nolan's going to do with finally getting his... one. I, you got to think Killian's one of his favorites to work with mm-hmm. and to have as, in his movie. So to finally get the opportunity to put him as the lead, so excited about Oppenheimer. And he's got the he's got a great look for Oppenheimer too. Oh, yeah. Again, like, can't be an outright film hero lead his he's both too pretty and too like a little bit too skeletal there's something going on there he's very distinct and he's got pretty piercing eyes he's striking (laughs) um but tay tay what's your shout out i just want to talk about probably the most horrifying moment in the movie for me uh it's the scene that i would call the purgatory scene it's like Mm. a pretty distinct it's one of the few distinct cuts in the film where it cuts to something that's very clearly a different time and space and it's Mm -hmm. it's the shot of alex tommy and the french soldier on the beach with the foam kind of flying up at them and they watch the one so the british soldier just kind of give up and kind of take off of his gun and wade himself into the water and start swimming the channel and it's a truly haunting moment in many Mm -hmm. ways i think the way they lit that particular five to ten minutes of the movie was different too they just kind of like I said, they made it into like almost a purgatory moment where there's no hope. And then you see this tragic moment of a soldier thinking that they can swim across the channel. And it, it's all done non-verbally. It's just a moment that the characters witness. And it's just one of those other microcosms that's quite haunting and telling of the greater picture. Brown sea foam is weird, too. Let's be honest. Mm-hmm. It's, yep. it's weird. It's a weird it feels, substance. <laughs> it feels dirty and creepy yeah 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 no i don't think you're wrong at all super powerful moment and not not drawn out very much it's almost seen as matter of fact like 
how many other guys are doing this. I believe I read, but I'll, I'll put in the show notes uh, if I can find it, that that was based on, you know, testimony from the event, that there were men who were just kind of like, it's like, it's right there. Like, wouldn't we be better off at least like swimming and, and, and meeting a boat part way or like anything's better than just waiting here to get dive bombed. You see, so I could see a scene like that where it's like people kind of telling themselves and pumping themselves up to do the swim saying like, it's just right there. Let's go do it. This is almost, this feels different to me. This is someone realizing there's no, nothing left to be here for. And kind of throwing all hope to the wind and hoping that you're just going to get carried mm-hmm. across the channel in some way or another because it, it just feels like this person isn't super enthusiastic about their chances. Yeah. Yeah, again, another another just sort, sort of nice hint as to the psychology of what it's like to be there. Another little data point for the experiential aspect of this movie. And like a lot of the kind of or the ensemble casting and background casting, it's just it's faceless. So it's very easy to put yourself in the shoes of the characters that you don't really see with full clarity. And I think this works really well in that regard, too. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. Uh, just quickly, we'll say our, our next episode's movie. We're not sure right now because I just launched the vote about an hour before we started this recording. But uh, we're having you guys vote over Saving Private Ryan, Hacksaw Ridge, Inglorious Bastards, and Overlord. Um, so it sh- should certainly be an interesting one. There are a couple leaders when I when I turned off my phone before the recording. Uh, Kyle, what would you vote for in there? Oh, Inglorious Bastards for sure. Yeah. I think <laughs> yeah, I was I think... lobbying a little bit for it for uh, our episode, but um, yeah, it's it's my favorite Tarantino film, and it's it is up there for me just in tr- in terms of just one of those well, one of those movies where you experience literally every emotion possible mm-hmm. i agree with that yeah i mean point. i think it, it 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 it'd be a cool pairing because obviously you know dunkirk's one of tarantino's favorite movies and we jump into a tarantino movie and and very much like dunkirk focusing on this real very important historical event and inglorious bastards just being like but what if what if this instead how how great would it would that have been all right so we'll we'll see uh just keep an eye on our instagram you'll find out what the next movie is um and i'll, I'll put it in the show notes by the time this goes live as well uh, but with that, we'll end with some recommendations. Uh, Kyle, by all means, uh, go first. What do you got? Yeah, so I'm going to go with the other Nolan Eye movie. So you've got, mm-hmm. obviously, Inception, and you've got Interstellar. I'm going to go with Insomnia. This mm-hmm. was, like, his first kind of, uh, you know, opportunity to do, like, a a studio film after his massive success of Memento. And it's mm-hmm. probably the most straight-down-the-middle kind of Hollywood thriller that he's ever done. You know, I I think everything else has kind of like the Nolan fingerprints all over it. And Insomnia doesn't have as many on it because it's, I think it was more of just like, let's do a studio film. And it's great. It's a great thriller. It's a Mm -hmm. great murder mystery. It's a, it's got an interesting protagonist. It's got an interesting antagonist and it's a, it's an indefinite, like cool environment where you're getting the impact of what it's like to be in this, this, sense of the sense of place that is really strong so mm-hmm. i i don't know how many times you've seen good old insomnia but it's worth a rewatch and that's why i chose it yeah i definitely need a rewatch i remember really enjoying a very fittingly uh sleepy al pacino right <laughs> i mean he has his moments still he's oh he, yeah he gets he, into it a little bit he can wake up yeah, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> i really like robin williams in that movie and i actually bought that i bought insomnia on vhs somewhat recently and that was a killer rewatch 
in like lower quality. <laughs> I really liked. Yeah. I really liked some <laughs> of the scenes in VHS format. I wonder. I wonder what <laughs> Nolan thinks about VHS. Yeah. Oh boy. Um, and I will say, like, just on that note too, the original Insomnia is very good as well. The one that Nolan based or like had to remake basically for in an American context. Uh, the original is a Swedish hmm. or Norwegian film. I can't remember, but Stellan Skarsgård's in it. It's oh, good. okay. I don't think I knew that. Love him. Can I just toss in one little, uh, little kind of uh, extra kind of reco on? You're, as well? you're a guest. We'll we'll let you get. Okay, away not a movie, that. so qualifying <laughs> that. But I, you know, if you liked um, kind of uh, some of what you saw in 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 there, I would uh, also recommend Slow Horses, which is a great television show, where you also get. Um, Jack Loudon back from Dunkirk. If you liked his character of Collins in, in Dunkirk, you get to see him do a lot more in Slow Horses. And so it's, a, a, mm-hmm. I think, a good little complimentary uh, series. And, and that's well. on uh, Apple. Yeah, I really enjoyed Apple Slow TV Horses. Plus. That's right. correct. Well, yeah, it's a solid little little spy thriller. Um, now, uh, Tay, what's your recommendation? Uh, I had a few uh, that I was really interested in sharing but i decided on uh, the most british one which is a uh, irish british film called 71 it came out in 2014 directed by jan damage uh, it stars jack o'connell sean harris and also from dunkirk and slow horses jack loudon um mm-hmm. this movie has a uh, one of my favorite scenes like in movie history i think in it, it it's uh, one of the most intense scenes without violence that i've ever seen and I would say if you know nothing about this movie, that's the way you should go into it. Um, if you need a bit of context, it's uh, a British soldier gets stuck behind enemy lines in Ireland during one of the IRA feuds. And it's a truly horrifying story of survival as this British soldier tries to escape a hellhole. And uh, very, very effective and criminally underseen, I found so 2014 mm-hmm. 71 and it's the number 71 is the title cool cool sounds very fitting as a recommendation off of dunkirk uh, i haven't seen it so i'll definitely be adding that to the list um and then yeah my recommendation a nice little quick one called uh, la jete which i may have actually talked about in the prestige episode our first episode of the podcast ever and our our only other nolan discussion um Again, this is one where the less you know, the better, but I'll make it easy and accessible for you. It's a black and white uh, French film, but it's 28 minutes long. Uh, I'll link directly to it on YouTube, so there's no barriers to entry. It's told uh, in a series of photographs uh, shot in black and white. And I, I'll just say, like, it has to do with um, World War Three in Paris. So there's a bit of a connection there as a war movie, you could say, arguably. And there are some more Nolan-specific connections, too, that I don't want to get away by going into any more detail. But you got a half hour, check out Le Jete. It's a, it's a very sort of foundational sci-fi film, I'd say, and uh, does a very interesting thing without overstaying its welcome. Very good recommendation. Cool. Awesome. And uh, with that, we'll say thanks so much, Kyle, for, for joining us here on Single Serving Cinema. Uh, I, I don't know about you, Tay, but I don't think this is the last time we'll have him here. No, I definitely, agree. Definitely bring you back. We'll talk talk about some more screenwriting lessons. This was, uh, this was a yeah, great discussion. Yeah, we'd love discussion. to hear more from you. Hey, I'm super – oh, thank you. I, I'm honored to have been invited, and, and yeah, I, I really enjoyed the discussion. Um, I guess for those of your listeners who want to learn more about me, you can follow me on mm-hmm. Instagram at Kyality. Or, and I'm also a, a regular guest on Worn and Wound's kind of 
watches on film uh, this podcast mm-hmm. called uh, Time on Screen. So you can catch me up, catch me there and, as well. Yeah, was the last one, or am I not up to date? Was the last one Top Gun Maverick, or were you on? Oh, we've done a couple, couple since, since then. Eh? Yeah, yeah, so we did, um, we did The Abyss, which is a great watch movie. So cool. And yeah. we also just recently did Bullet. Right. Oh, yeah. You had that 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 new Bullet project. Fantastic. Out. So yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely uh, check the show notes for some links to all that, and uh, and and keep an eye out for when we bring Kyle back. Cool. Thank you, guys. But uh, yeah, thanks everybody. We'll catch you next time. Uh, make sure to make sure to see what you voted for, and uh, we'll catch you back here in two weeks. 